You know, for a long time, I meant to try Pete's coffee, but just never gave it a chance. But ever since I did, I have a hard time settling on anything less. And there's something to say about a coffee company with such rich history and devotion to bring you that perfect brew. Since Alfred Pete opened his first coffee bar in 1966, Pete's has selectively sourced the finest beans in the world, carefully calibrating each roast by hand and crafting each beverage with the utmost care. Pete's aims to produce fresh from the roaster's coffee delivered directly to your door, sourcing the top 1% of coffee beans, roasted by hand to unlock each bean's potential, and delivering it to you fresh to bring you the perfect cup. With over 30 flavor varieties in both gourmet coffees and teas, like Vietnam Lotus Bold, Major Dickinson's Blend, and Arabian Mocha Java, you are sure to find the right flavor to start your day. And they even come in K-Cups for those of you who live life on the go. Check out all the varieties of Pete's has to offer by following the link in the show notes below. And starting August 30th, you can take advantage of their Labor Day sale and get yourself 20% off anything on their site by using promo code LABORDAY20 at checkout. This offer is valid through September 5th. That's promo code LABORDAY20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase this Labor Day. But why not do one better? Use promo code NEWSUB30 at checkout and you get yourself 30% off of a new subscription to Pete's Coffee. That's right. All the delicious coffee you could want delivered right to your door each and every month without you ever having to worry about running low. What more could you ever need? That's promo code NEWSUB30 for 30% off your subscription. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Grindhouse, where we drink coffee, talk about movies. My name is Leah Diana, and today, with my boyfriend and co-host Sean Tatro, we will be winding back the reels to. 1986. You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do? You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. In the labyrinth! Let's get into it! <laughs> TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of the Muppets and Dark Crystal. Ah! Where you go with a head like that? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. <laughs> and one of the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible, and nothing is what it seems. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars for no one. Yeah. Oh, no. 
the world of Labyrinth. Spread the word, you dirty cocksuckers. Tell all your grave robbing friends I want them out of the city now! The nightmare of insane murder. From the depths of hell. I love this movie. I love this movie. And it's weird why I love this movie. I distinctly remember being about maybe seven, eight, nine years old. I don't remember, but it was prior to my brother being born. And I remember seeing an advertisement on the Disney Channel, you know, the early Disney Channel, where they were playing this movie, but it was coming on at 7 p.m. And I had to ask my parents to stay up to watch this movie because I wouldn't go to bed till nine. And that was way past my bedtime. I don't remember a lot from when I was younger. I have a really bad memory. But I distinctly remember every part of this movie and how it made me feel at that young of an age. And rewatching it back now made me realize just how impactful this movie was being the only child about ready to have siblings. Like everything I owned was now going to be like somebody else. Like I'll have to share. I'll have to learn all these new skills. And I didn't realize how much I related to Sarah until this moment at like the five millionth viewing of this movie. But this movie shaped how I grew up from being an only child to having siblings. It's kind of funny, but not because it's like, how come you didn't see that? You know, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be as of today when you guys are listening, 37 years old. Oh, I'm old. And this movie is 36 years old. <laughs> yeah, I think this was one that, I think this one impacted a lot of people. Yeah. I think maybe if they didn't understand the meanings behind it when they first saw it or like i can tell you i i never understood it really understood the plot it was the visual spectacle that captivated me yeah and i think this combined with all of the practical effects and stuff that i grew up watching this was one of those movies that like really made me fall in love with puppetry mm-hmm. and to this day, whenever I see a physical like puppet effect of any kind in a movie, it, it it gives me that warm, nostalgic feeling. And I think movies like this, Dark Crystal, like they they have a lot to do with that because as a child, you're going to be shown all these like kid friendly movies. You'll be shown the Muppets and even some some Disney works that mm. aren't animated will generally have like puppets and practical things like that to kind of capture the imagination. Yeah, I think this is this is definitely one that influenced me whether I knew it or not. And I think this was one of like the really big first Disney movies. Like I didn't watch a lot of like those like growing up like 
the movies that can come to mind is like All Dogs Go to Heaven, Rockadoodle Do, The Secret of Nim. I didn't watch those. I watched Disney shows. I remember coming home from school and watching Alice in Wonderland and uh, all those other shows. I watched Nickelodeon. I watched Clarissa Explains It All and all those crazy shows back in the 90s. But this is the first movie where I was like drawn in. It to me, this it's a simple movie. It's a simple film, but it's so mysterious and so fantastical to me that I wanted to be Sarah growing up. I wanted that, you know, that ideal, that bedroom with all those wonderful, beautiful things and that beautiful dress and, you know, to be like the, that actress. And, and I really like realize how much I wanted to be fucking Sarah Williams, you know? Is it William or Williams? I think it's Williams. I honestly have never. It says it on the. It says it on the um on all the pictures of her mom. Oh. So a lot of there's a lot of backstory to all of this, and I actually have fun facts. I don't have to look at my phone for, which is kind of funny. Before we get into any of that, I I do want to say like that. That's one of my major notations here, and I didn't actually make the note until like the end of the movie. But one of the things about this movie that always, like, I always found myself wishing for more of was depth in the characters. Yeah. And, like, I've always, like, mainly Jareth. Like, I've always wanted to know more, to learn more about all of them. Like, the only person they really even try to focus on is Sarah. And I'm fine with that because it's her story. But at the same time, like, I just yearn to know more about where these characters came from. Like, like the depth of them, like what their motivations are. You know you can, right? I know I can. But like in terms of this film, film? like I'm only trying to like focus on this specific story. But at the same time as like wanting to know more of that, there's a simplicity to it that I really enjoy because... It allows your imagination to run wild and kind of fill in the gaps. But as you kind of the you kind of made this point a moment ago, there's a lot of detail physically throughout the movie that you can pick up on and kind of clue you into certain things about these characters. And mm. like, for God's sake, the entire story is really shown to you within Sarah's bedroom. Yeah. The entire plot is there if you look for the... If you pay attention to every single thing in that bedroom, it is all there. Jareth is there. The dress is there. The the labyrinth there. The story, the the actual play of the labyrinth is there. Um, All the characters. Everything she goes through is in that room. Which, if you deep dive, and a lot of people have deep dive for meanings. Because people look for meanings in everything. They think this is... Like, things that I've seen is... This is a deep dive into Sarah's subconscious to grow up because she realizes that she's supposed to be 16, 15, 16, 17 in this movie. And she's supposed to be this very whimsical, childlike character that her mind forces her to grow up very quickly. By the end, you see where this change is made, but she still is like, I'm not going to let go of everything, but I do have to move on. And it's, it's really like really hits me pretty hard like how I feel like growing up I had my parents had my brother and sister when I was eight nine years old and I feel like I I had to grow up very quickly 
um, and help them. We didn't grow up with a lot of money. We, we did grow up poor. And I know my mom listens to this. My parents tried to do the best they could, but you know, they needed help. And unfortunately they had a child that was, you know, almost a decade older than these two kids. So I had to help. They worked a lot. And I mean a lot. My, I don't remember my dad ever being home. I remember my mom working a shit ton. I remember back in the 90s, nobody get mad at my parents, but back in the 90s, I went to a Catholic school and I would walk home from Catholic school because my Catholic school was like literally right behind my house. And I would walk home and I would be home from two, three o'clock to like five, six o'clock. I had to learn how to peel potatoes, start dinner. You know, if my brother and sister, you know, were being babysat somewhere else, I had to take care of myself. And now being seven, eight, nine years old, that's unheard of in this time. That's considered child neglect. <laughs> like, yeah. But back then, there was no other way for my parents to make ends meet. Like, I literally had to sit there and be like, okay, you've got to grow up. You've got to be a big girl. And to me, a big girl meant... You couldn't be like this. So when I watched this movie, I was like, oh my God, like, I want to, I want to be Sarah. Now as an adult, you look around and I'm still that girl. I have all, like, this apartment doesn't really tell it. A lot of my stuff is still in storage because we don't have a very big place, but I'm still that, that little girl. Yes. And I think that that actually plays pretty heavily into the, the themes that I, pick up on Mm -hmm. in this movie at least watching it now like like you i grew up in very similar circumstances maybe not to the extremes that you did but like my parents both worked my dad was almost never home he usually worked like the mid shift Mm -hmm. like so he'd come home around five five six o'clock my mom worked the day shift while we were at school uh they we weren't left alone a lot, but I think like watching them gr- while I grew up kind of made me grow up faster. Mm-hmm. Like I started working immediately. At like, 14? Uh, I think I was 16, but, and I quickly learned to, you know, start cooking for myself and taking care of myself and basically being independent and growing up very fast. Yeah. For me, especially at least once you reach the end of this story, you kind of, it's very apparent that they're trying to tell you that this is a story about growing up. This is a story about accepting responsibility. This is a story that it's about moving on in your life. However, you should never let go of what makes you, you. And you should always at least try to hold on to some small part of that, imagination which is i feel what sarah does at the end of this movie yeah but i think we've dove ahead of ourselves here this movie has a lot (laughs) you wouldn't think a simple puppet movie for kids would be so in depth but when i say that this movie molded children from the 80s it really did i don't know anyone who hates this movie I don't know anyone who wasn't introduced to David Bowie through this movie. If you hate this movie, you're soulless. On it, but <laughs> but if people that hate this movie also do not understand the meaning behind this movie. Jim Henson could have been like, oh, I just want to make a simple movie about a girl rescuing her brother. And I've overanalyzed this movie with friends. Why? My voice is cracking. This is how this movie makes me emotional. Okay. Um, like this movie shaped 
who I became as a teenager and as, and as an adult now. Like, I, it is uncanny what this movie really meant to me as a kid. And even as an adult, I only watch this movie maybe once or twice a year. I don't, I've never wanted to overdo this movie. There are movies I put it, Lord of the Rings. I watch Lord of the Rings either once, once twice a year. This movie, I, I don't because I never want to get sick of this movie. I have it on tape, DVD, Blu-ray. And to me, if there's a new release, I'll buy it. I don't care. I have the pop figures. I have stuffed animals for this. I had slippers at one point. I don't know what happened to those. They're, they're gone. A friend of mine bought me tar- labyrinth tarot cards for Christmas, which are beautiful. And it's one of those things that like, I forget about this movie and then you're reminded and you're like, oh yeah, huh. But anyways, let's, let's, let's stop overanalyzing ourselves with this film and actually talk about it. So this week we watched Jim Henson's Labyrinth. Um, This film is, the story came from Jim Henson and Dennis Lee. It's directed by Jim Henson off of a screenplay by Terry Jones. The movie stars David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly. It was originally released June 27th, 1986. It was made on a budget of $25 million, and it brought in a box office return of $12.9 million. So this was actually a commercial failure by a monumental... Which means it's it's going to be a cult classic. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, um, I just realized when you said it was written by Terry Jones, I'm like, Terry Jones, I know that name. Monty Python, Flying Circus. Yes. Holy uh, shit. Terry Jones was, he worked a lot with the Monty Python crew to, on a, I think a variety of their, their films and series. Hang on. Sorry. Sorry. I just, I just derailed you. Um, I clicked on Jennifer Connelly because, you know, I followed pretty much her career. Do you know who her husband is? No. Vision. No shit. Her husband is Paul Bettany. They've been married since 2003. That's awesome. And they have four children together. Wow. God damn. Three children. I'm sorry. Three. Huh. I'm going to stop putting the... Nope. We're Wikipedia. We're putting Wikipedia down. <laughs> Continue. I'm sorry. Um. So this, this film went on to have such a following that it actually, as you sort of mentioned, or you alluded to at the very least, that it was later given a sequel, Return to the Labyrinth. Uh, came out between 2006 and 2010, but it's a comic book series. It's a manga series. I own two or three of them. Yeah. And from what I've heard, it is a really cool extension to the story. It follows Toby. Sarah's grown up. Sarah has moved on. And it's Jareth getting hold a hold of Toby saying, I need a successor. And it follows how Toby kind of thought that that whole thing was just a dream. And even Sarah was like, oh, you know, it never happened. It never really happened. But once Jareth contacts Toby and says, I need a successor, that's when Sarah opens up to her brother. And it really goes into the plots where, and I think, I'm not 100% sure, so people can correct me, where Jareth was in love with Sarah. And you can see David Bowie does have a very range of a good range of emotions in his face to where people think that Jareth was falling in love with Sarah 
And I really don't think that's the case. I have always in my mind thought that Jareth was in love with Sarah's mother. And, and, he, and he always thought that Sarah was the daughter he could never have because Sarah is human. So I've always thought that he saw Sarah more as, as a daughter, as he would love to raise her, he would love to. I never really liked the whole he's in love with her thing. It was, it's, it's very, it's very typical fantasy. That's why in my mind, I've always thought that Jareth looked at her as the daughter I've, I would never have. I would love to care for her. I would love to keep her safe. Give her everything she's ever wanted, ever wanted, because that's all she wants. Now, does this come from like the comic no, series? No, this is my personal. Like I, I've always thought of, but people think that Jareth is in love with Sarah. That's but what the whole thing. That I can understand. Yeah. But where does the mother factor? That's, in? that's my, that's my you personal opinion. Reaching that's on that I, one. That's what I've always thought of. Okay. I've always thought that Jareth was in love with Sarah's mother. And has watched her grow up. That's why the owl is always watching Sarah. I didn't really like the whole Sarah and Jared fall in love plot because she's like 15, 16 and he's like... God knows how old. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> that's a little creepy. Um, but fantasy, you know, whatever. Yes. Uh, something I would like to mention uh, before we get too far, because this answers a question that you had while we were watching the movie. Mm. So Labyrinth is... A musical fantasy film, as I said, directed by Jim Henson, with George Lucas as pr- executive producer. So, so technically, technically, ILM did do the effects for this. And we, you and I, just finished watching Light and Magic, which is the documentary behind ILM. And Jesus Christ, people, watch that fucking documentary! I was blown away. Okay, I have been mad at George Lucas for the sequels. Four years. Four years. Yes, I'm a hater of the, uh, pre- sorry, not the sequels, the prequels. I've never liked them. They've always made me unhappy. But after watching Light and Magic, I realized George thought that it was the right time to do those movies. He should have waited just a little bit longer. Because the visions and everything that he had for those movies, if he would have waited five more years, it would have been even more incredible. Yeah. Yeah. They are now doing his original vision for what they would have been with stuff like The Mandalorian. Yes. And, like, in that documentary, you even get to see him, like, on the set of Mandalorian being like, this is This, this is, is what, what I, I wanted, wanted 30 years ago. And you're just sitting there like, this is what you thought of 30 years ago. Guys, you have to thank George Lucas for the advancement um, computer graphics in movies. You have to thank him for the advancement of practical magic in movies. You have to thank his team for the creation of Adobe Photoshop. I didn't know this. John Knoll, who worked for ILM, and his brother created Adobe Photoshop. Nothing, nothing in the film industry, in the in the photo industry, nothing in the advancements of graphic design or video design would have been possible without George Lucas. What the fuck, George? It's funny because like almost nobody knows that. I'm, I'm I was very, I lost my shit when I found half this out. I'm very glad that they covered that stuff in that series because now maybe people like. I think George Lucas made some mistakes, but you can't discredit what he did no. to push the the envelope. His entire team on the original Star Wars, the A New Hope, his entire team created 
cameras created that motion cap created this stuff for Star Wars. And here I am like watching this thinking Star Wars was just a cool space fantasy movie. No, George Lucas literally rewrote how everything was made for three decades. And if it wasn't just solely George Lucas, it was the team that he created. It was the people he surrounded himself with. And he made sure that, oh, I created ILM for myself, but my friends can use it. Like Steven Spielberg, like uh, he was friends with Francis Ford Coppola. Didn't know that. Who else was he friends with? James Cameron, who, you know, all of his shit. I'm like, what the? I was blown away by how great that documentary was. Here I am sitting here going, oh, okay, it's just gonna be a lighthearted documentary about how, you know, Star Wars was made. Star Wars was the first two episodes. Guys, Pixar was created by George Lucas's people. And then he sold them to Apple. And then Apple sold it to Disney. We wouldn't have Pixar if it wasn't for George Lucas. I really wish we still had video because I was sitting here when I found that out. I looked at him and went, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I've hated George Lucas for the prequels since they came out. No, since Attack of the Clones, the, the second movie. I saw that in theater and I was very disappointed. 20 years later, I'm like, what the fuck, George? And this movie was developed during the... The height. During the building of ILM. So, like, technically, ILM didn't work on this movie, no. but the people who who were ILM did. Yes. Because you can see... And I don't know... I know that um, Philip Tippett, he was more of a stop-motion animator. Um, but you had the green screen scene with the Chili Gang. Which I've always like, oh, this is terrible CG. But then you're sitting here going, this is 1986. This was probably remarkable for 1986. And I'm like, holy shit, this movie's 36 years old. Yeah, this Damn. this movie is it's an absolute absolute visual spectacle, and it's a like a treasure trove of puppetry. Coming from Jim Henson, that's not a surprise. There is more puppets than there are live actors. There are four live actors. The dad, the stepmom, David Bowie, and Jennifer Connelly. Yes. And that's it. Every... Oh, I can't forget Toby, whose real name is actually Toby. <laughs> and every scene, every single scene showcases puppetry in some form. It's kind of astonishing. Like, even... I f- think even in the Muppet movies, they cut away from puppets at some point but <laughs> the the one puppet that absolutely blows my mind every time is the dude walking around with the, the the bird on his head that is a person in that costume who is puppeting one hand mouthing with one hand and then there is a control in that hand for him to step away and then control the mouth of the little guy so it's literally a three pulley system that this man has to do in this one costume and it blows you away with how practical like there is only one cg scene or no there's two but this last cg scene is between david and jennifer and it's not really anything much more than we just have to superimpose them on a weird background that's all that is but it's compositing composite superimpose composite whatever shall we get into the meat of this film and do you want to take us through the labyrinth 
so I, <laughs> I've been wanting to ever since 1993. So I've, I have no notes for this movie. None. 100% no notes. I know this movie like back of my hand. That's new. Um, <laughs> so the movie starts out with you're in a park and Sarah is acting a scene out of the end of the labyrinth in the park. And she can never remember her last line. There's an hour watching her and she has her dog Merlin with her. Clock chimes. It's seven o'clock. She was supposed to be home by six because her parents needed to leave to go on a date. Then ensues what I call the 1986 teenage angst of it's not fair. Oh, God. So, yeah, that's something to note is that Jennifer Connelly's performance in this movie is so fucking overdramatic. It is. It's beautiful. It's a perfect perfect angsty teenage girl before we even knew what an angsty teenage girl was really yes she gets home and her stepmother is like we rarely go out she's like you go out every weekend and we just ask you to babysit if you don't have plans she was never asked me for my plans so you can see where it's just like a very headstrong teenager and someone who just married into this family she's just trying you can tell she's like i just i i don't know what to do she treats me like the wicked stepmom like what am i supposed to do kind of thing and you only see the dad for like a split second, but you you can tell that this is a family that was rocked with tragedy. They never tell you what happened to the mom. I don't know if she divorced. I don't know if she died. I think she passed away. I think that's what happened to her mom. She passes away. But it's just... Something I noticed very early in these opening scenes is uh, there's a lot of very noticeable ADR for the dialogue. Oh, God. I hate you. I hate you. And her mouth doesn't move right now. And you're yeah. like... And I what? I kind of wonder if they they just dubbed most of the movie. I mean, it's possible because the one thing that I noticed is there was a lot of practical elements. And they probably had to use a lot of foam board and a lot of things that sound would have been really absorbed by. It wouldn't have been able to bounce off much. So I'm thinking that while they probably delivered the lines really well, maybe Jim was like, could have been stronger. Let's redub it. And, and you notice a lot of the step, the father, the stepmother and Jennifer's lines in that house all are 80 yard pretty yeah. much, except until she gets to the point where she's like talking to the baby. Then you can tell that's actually, that's actually her voice right there. It's not 80 yard. You get the shine on all the other movies. This is mine. This is my time to sparkle, baby. You can have it. Take the floor. I can't get on the floor. <laughs> As of right now, okay, I'm still on my cast. We are five weeks into this. I get it off a week from Tuesday. <laughs> I'm going to be so happy. And when you guys are listening to this, it's my birthday. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing this. Because this is my... This movie... One day you and I are going to go into our top... What would we say? Top 20 or top to 50 movies? I think it was top 50, 25 from each eventually. So this is my number one. And I'll be all... This Spoiler is number one. alert. Spoiler alert. This is my number one. And I'll get into more of why it's my number one when we get to that discussion. But no, this is my number one. And my birthday fell on a release day for Grindhouse. We planned this one in February, guys. I looked at him and went... That goes in September 5th right now. <laughs> and he was like, all right, okay. And this is probably why we messed up on the order of movies so many times. Yeah. Because <laughs> we put this one in. So when you guys are listening to this, uh, it is my birthday. I turn 37. I'm old lady. Got a couple more years till 40. And I um, 
still buy more stuffed animals than I know what to do with. <laughs> Sean hates it. <laughs> but this movie was very influential to me. So, like, we could have done anything for Labor Day. Dude, we could have found a Labor Day movie and done it, which I don't think there really is a Labor Day I'm movie. I'm sure there's there. at least one. Um, but to me, it was like, now nah, we're doing this one. Um, I distinctly remember the first time viewing this, because we have to get this out of the way right now. I distinctly remember viewing this going, wow, David Bowie's gorgeous. David Bowie's like this ethereal creature. And I really did think he wore the eyeliner and had that hair (laughs) as a child. And then when I got into it, my dad introduced me to Ziggy Stardust. And I'm like, who's that? He's like, that's David Bowie. I'm like, that's David Bowie. He's like, no, that's David Bowie. I'm like, no, that's David, Labyrinth David Bowie. And as I got older, I was like, oh, Jareth is a character. David is a man. Okay, cool. But David was really like that awakening for me. Not a sexual awakening. It was more of a men can be pretty too. Like, wow. And then my dad was like, nah, he's been doing this since the 60s and 70s. Here you go. Here's uh, Ziggy Stardust. And I was like, so I really got introduced to a lot of different music through this movie too as well. Um, I'm just going to go off on tangents. Uh, so where are we? We get to the point where Sarah has her tantrum, goes in her room and finds out that Lancelot, her bear, is missing from his cubby. And all of a sudden she goes into the I hate you rant, normal teenage crankiness. And she goes into her parents' room where Toby's crying and she's acts like he's the worst thing in the world. And I thought in my head that that's how I was going to be when my new baby brother or sister was going to be born in 93. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to hate them. They're going to make my life a living hell. Spoiler alert, my brother does make my life a living hell, but you know, that's that's neither here nor there. He doesn't listen to this. My mom does, so I'm going to get a call being like, don't pick on your brother. <laughs> but, um... You get to the point where she's telling the story about the goblins and all, and then you see the little goblins. And I love the scene where Jim Henson has all of them squished into one frame and they're all like, listen, she's going to say the words. And you can see all of like the cringles in the mouth and like how they don't fit perfectly. But I think that's the quirkiness of this because they're supposed to be goblins. They're supposed to be imperfect. And I love how none of the puppets in here are perfect. All of them are janky. All of them are crackly. And he even uses hands to his advantage because a puppet master's tools are their hands. In order to bring it to life, you have to use the hands. And then you have a whole scene where it's just a fucking tunnel of hands and they are making puppets just with their hands. I think Jim Henson really struck gold with this one, honestly. Like, there's nothing about this movie that I hate. Nothing. Not a thing. I'm just glad we don't have smell-o-vision for the Baga stench. Because <laughs> I can imagine what that thing really in his mind smelled like. Oh, no. Visually, he conveyed it as the most disgusting pit oh, of my God. sludge. Spoiler alert. We live in a town where our sewage treatment plant is right next to the highway. So when it's a really hot day... I can imagine what the bog of eternal stench does oh, smell like. God. <laughs> uh, that uh, that fucking that fucking uh, sewage treatment plant is also near the one mall, uh, one of our big malls, yeah. Warwick Mall. Um, and also back in 2007, 
was it 2007 when the Patuxent River flooded? I have no idea. And because of the sewage treatment plant was right near the river and the mall, our mall was filled with sewage. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it was, dude, that flood, like, you could probably, if you're somebody that doesn't know Rhode Island, you could look up the flood in Rhode Island that ruined the Warwick Mall. It was disgusting. And as in, when that happened as an adult, I went, oh, God, the entirety of Warwick is just the bog of eternal stench now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, this is a tangent one. I'm so, sorry, guys. This one's going to be long. I'm looking at the, the data right now, and I'm like, oh, my God, we're in, like, the first 10 minutes of the movie. Um, So... Sarah goes on telling Toby's story and goes, Goblin King, Goblin King, wherever you may be. And all the puppets are like, that's not the right word. What the fuck, lady? Get the, we're going back to sleep. And as she leaves, she says, I wish the Goblin King would take you away right now. And he takes Toby. And thus ensues a 13-hour fight for her to get her little brother back. So that scene essentially introduces us to the Goblin King, Oh my god. And the, the fact that when they open those doors and the glitter coming off the curtains and the sparkle and the lighting, you right there fall in love with David Bowie. You're like, oh my God. And the funny thing is that there were, like David Bowie almost wasn't the Goblin King. He almost was not the Goblin King. Yep. Um, so some of the other, it was always going to be a singer. Yes. Like they, they, they knew that from the beginning. Just tell me Mick Jagger wasn't in the running. No. Thank God. Um, so some of the top contenders were Sting, who at the time was the lead singer of The Police. Yep. He had a bit of acting experience, so he was like a natural choice. Rod Stewart. I can see that. Freddie Mercury of Queen. I don't know. Uh, Prince. Ooh. Was in discussion. Oh, that's a different sexual awakening right there. And but the biggest one was the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson. They considered Michael Jackson for this. Yes, because he had always dreamed of being like mo- a movie star. Uh, they were very close to getting him, but Jim Henson went with David Bowie because he was he had that glam rock style, but he embodied more of what. Jim Henson envisioned for the character. Now, I could see Sting, but I also see Sting as more of a posh, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, a posh, uptight kind of British. So I don't, I think he would have been a little stiffer. Rod Stewart embodies that glam rock. I understand that one, but Rod Stewart is not what I envision. Fun fact, when I was a kid, I felt I loved Rod Stewart. I had all of his tapes as a kid. When the National Air Show, National Guard Air Show would be here in Quonset, I hate loud noises. So every single time that show was here, I had my tape deck and my Rod Stewart tape. I had to have Rod Stewart because his voice was loud enough for me to not be able to hear the jet engines. So Rod Stewart is a great choice. His voice is amazing. I love his music. Maggie is one of my favorite songs. Um, but I honestly could not see anybody but David. Michael Jackson would have been a great choice, but this movie would have been so much different. There's a lot of little things about Jareth that I kind of want to cover. Okay. Because he's a very prominent character in this movie. Uh, Apparently, his overall vibe was inspired by a cross between Jane Erie and Marlon Brando. 
which I think I can see a little bit, at least on the Brando side. Jane Ear, Jane Ear, yeah, I guess because it's that very like, okay, it's hard to describe because I don't know Jane Ear that that well, but it's that like um, Pride and Prejudice kind of sense and sensibility that very kind of like regal early 1900s like British I I can kind of see that but Marlon Brando like I'm gonna make him an offer get that guy is that Marlon Brando yeah huh okay I don't get either one of those in the performance I get the Brando stuff. Like he carries himself in a similar way to a lot of Brando's performances. Apparently, David Bowie, despite what you may think while watching the movie, could not juggle. Uh, no, <laughs> um, they did a very good job with hiding the fact that there was somebody else behind him doing the crystals the entire time. Uh, that is not David Bowie, and I was disappointed as a teenager finding out that David Bowie had no crystal twirling skills. It's honestly unbelievable how well it's hidden it is because it it very looks very natural like it's actually him yeah they did a lot of good camera work where he's doing this one in the front of him with when he's introducing sarah yeah and and you're like oh okay so david learned how to do anybody can do it you can't i broke two crystals trying to learn how to do this shit guys but even the the shots where it's like Front and center, David Bowie, and his hand is twirling these those, crystals. The, those crystals in the in the windowsill, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm really convinced. You've got to pay attention to see his shoulder back too far and the arm too far forward to like, even know. But it's because they used the dark fabric. They hit it very yeah. well. They did camera tricks. It's like, damn. It's crazy accurate. It, like, it is. It is very good. And young Toby didn't like. David very much. No. <laughs> At least not in costume. No, he cried every... Um, the kid that played Toby, his real name is Toby. I thought it was really cute. Um, he cried every time he saw David Bowie. And in the special in the special features, there's like a behind the scenes thing where Sarah is... Or Jennifer is holding Toby and he's calm. And David turns the corner and goes, oh shit. And he just starts crying. He goes, well, I gotta go. Like in... I don't even know if it's on this special features because I saw it years and years and years ago. But it's so funny how this this David in costume just terrified this two, three-year-old little boy. <laughs> well, that's the, the cool thing because there's, there's a lot of scenes where David has to hold Toby and he has to interact with him yep. in s- sequences. And, like, there's one notable one where... Like, I guess he's holding Toby. I I tried to look for it in the movie, but he's holding him and he's like kind of whispering into his ear. And the only way that they could pull that off, like you can notice that Toby's kind of just staring off into like the distance. I think his mom's off camera. No. No? They achieved that by having David was holding him, but his arm is out of frame. So he's holding him and playing with a little sock puppet that the crew just happened to have. Aww. So he's distracting him so he's not paying attention. Oh, it's so really cute. cool. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh my god. Yeah, there's there's notable times where the magic is broken a couple of times in this. Not a lot, but the magic is broken when he's like, "Oh, I have a gift for you. It's a crystal." 
and the scene that they have in the crystal doesn't match the scene that you're actually watching. Like, David's mouth is moving in the crystal differently than the other ones, so you can tell that, like, maybe they just didn't fix the take in there, or... See, but things like that are forgivable. Oh, yeah. there's all this magic and mysticism. It's a, it's a and... fantasy movie, so you're not supposed to be 100% believing that this shit's actually happening. Yeah. Something that we skipped over mm-hmm. that I'd like to draw attention to was that this movie opens with a shot of an owl that's it's like our opening credit sequence yeah that was the that owl was the first computer generated animal ever ever yes that's incredible and looking at it now you're like this is a piece of trash oh it looks like shit it looks like horrible but back then people were like oh my god because you can't really train an owl to do a lot of that stuff i mean the owl that they had on scene to fly and do little things kind of could but you know Excuse me. You couldn't. You can't really get a, an owl to like. All right, hit your mark. You can kind of get a cat or dog to do that, but an owl, yeah, no, they're gonna go. They're gonna go be themselves. So, we get to Sarah is introduced to the labyrinth, and the game is you have 13 hours to find your baby brother before he become turns into a goblin and becomes Jareth's subject forever. So, ensues her going to the front of the labyrinth and meeting Hoggle. Or Hogwarts. I really would love to know if that is where J.K. Rowling got Hogwarts from. Honestly, probably. Because that's the first time you hear the word Hogwarts. Maybe she got it from something else, but I've always thought in my head, like, oh, man, is that how she named Hogwarts? I'm probably going to get schooled by, schooled by all the Potterheads, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, you meet Hoggle, who I think is one hell of a puppet. It's a full body puppet. Yeah, it's like an actual actor, but then there's um It's a pup it's a, a mechanical face yep. and it's not an actual like pup- puppeteering head, it's a mechanical head. Which is really, really cool. I think I read somewhere that it took six different people to puppet him. Jesus. Which is crazy. Now here's the uh here's the question I have for you. Who is the actor in that? Is it Warwick? I don't know. Um Because I think Warwick would be doing Willow at this point? So, no. Uh, So the physical actor is someone named Sherry Weiser. Okay. And the voice of Hoggle is actually Brian Henson. Yeah, I always knew Brian Henson was the voice of Hoggle. Because I I like Brian Henson. I think he's cool. (laughs) Uh, What is our next... So we open, uh, Hoggle opens the labyrinth and we're introduced to the labyrinth. It's not an ordinary maze. A labyrinth is a maze that can change at any time, depending on how you move a labyrinth. Um, they're very interesting puzzles, very old, ancient kind of puzzle. Um, the labyrinth is built on a tilting kind of access. So if you tilt it one way, the doors from one way can close and new ones can open. So a labyrinth is ever-changing, ever-expanding. So there isn't just one linear path to take. There are many. The problem is the path you just took could change in an instant. So you can never really backtrack in a labyrinth. Um, There's also supposed to be a giant minotaur in a labyrinth, but pretty really glad that there wasn't one in this movie. Well, I mean, you kind of have the... Ludo? Ludo character who's similar. He is based off of, and I think I read this somewhere, he is based off of where the wild things are. That makes sense. Um, 
and that's one of the books that is in Sarah's room. Um, everything in here is based off of a book or a fantasy. Um, like Sir Didymus and Ambrosius, um, Ludo, Hoggle, they're all based on different stories. Yeah, the, uh, so at the beginning of the movie, you meet Sarah's dog, mm-hmm. who's named Merlin. Merlin. Um, it's also used as Ambrosius. Ambrosius later in the movie. And I didn't know, but in Joff- uh, Joffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, mm. Merlin is c- called Merlin Ambrosius. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a double name. So calling him Merlin in the beginning, was, you know, you'd think somebody who's into fantasy, that makes sense. But only really real, real like historian fantasy nerds will know that it is supposed to be a nod to it's the same dog. Yeah. It's kind of cool. It's really cool. I love it. There's all sorts of little things like that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, God, I'm losing. This, this is the first film that I know everything about, but I, my brain just goes scatterbrained all over this film that I can't stay on a linear track. So I apologize if I jump, if I go off tangents. Um, so she's in the labyrinth and we come up to my favorite character in the entire fucking movie. The worm. Hello. Hello. No, I said hello, but that's close enough. He is... This tiny little, tiny little worm. But in real life, he was as big as an arm. Like, can you imagine that life-size puppet? He was an arm-sized puppet. All the detail on that, I thought he was probably one of my favorites. And he's a simple character. Because he's just, no, I'm just a worm. Come inside and have a cup of tea with the missus. How the hell was she going to get inside there when you are this big and she is human-sized? Like, I've always wanted their own adventure. What if Sarah just went in and had a cup of tea and lived there? Well, that's uh, something you could ask a lot about this movie. What if she had done it? What if she had turned left instead of right? Yep. It would what have been a whole he, different story. What if she would have listened to the worm and went down the other way and got into the castle right away? We wouldn't have the story that we do. Exactly. But I also think that the, the curse of the labyrinth is the residents cannot tell you exactly how to get how to solve it. Correct. Like, they are not the curse of the labyrinth. You cannot strictly say, oh, you go that way, you'll get there. Because he says, no, don't go that way. He says it in an emphasis, like, no, you should go that way. But Sarah is still very naive, very childlike to where she's going to literally listen to them. By the end, she she gets it, that 
not everything is what it seems. That's a cool bit of information. Mm. Producer George Lucas chose not to do any interviews during the release of this movie as to not steal Jim Henson's thunder, who was at the time one of his best friends until he passed away. Oh, that's really cool. Because you you see George Lucas's name on this film. You don't like he's not in the opening where you put producer yeah. and stuff. He is in the scrolling credits at the end. I have to say, I've never been a I've never been a fan of George the person, but after watching Light and Magic. And after, like, learning things as an adult, George Lucas is a very misunderstood human being. People I agree. hate on him for the prequels, and I will agree. I hated on him. I hated on him because of the prequels. Because I don't think he did the story justice. But I also think he was hindered by storytelling, by financials, and by the technology that he needed to convey his story. Well, imagine this. Like, imagine if the marketing for this movie had said stuff like oh uh, produced by George directed Lucas. by Jim Henson produced by George Lucas you would have had the same thing that happened with Gremlins yeah so Gremlins was directed by Joe Dante produced by Steven Spielberg mm. but because at the beginning of that movie it says Steven Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins yeah everybody just assumed that he directed it yeah and Joe Dante got no fucking credit for it which, I mean, he got credit for it, but nobody, most people just didn't know yeah. that it was his. And in doing that, in allowing his name to be kind of left off of it, for the, in the public eye at least, he gave Jim Henson the opportunity to, like, stake his claim. Yeah. And I think that's, it's something that a lot of people wouldn't do. I, fucking Spielberg didn't do it. But I also don't think Spielberg had bad intentions. I think no. Spielberg was like, let's get this movie out there. Let's get people talking about it. But shit happens. Yeah. Like, and I think George Lucas knew that. Like, was I think he Gremlins had that. before or after this? Oh, God. Uh, I think it was before. So maybe George and Steven, because you know that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were really good friends. Maybe he's like, don't learn from my mistakes. Don't put your name on the movie. Maybe they actually had a talk yeah, about that. Gremlins was 84. Honestly, the way George Lucas talks about his friends in this, like, he let his friends use industrial light magic. I mean, in this moment in time, I have to tell you, the most remarkable thing about that, this whole thing is becoming, like, about this documentary. I'm so pissed. Um, but, guys, the fourth episode is about Jurassic Park. That episode blew my mind. And it blew my mind how caring Steven Spielberg really was because finding out, we'll go into more detail because we are going to do Jurassic Park in this podcast, finding out that someone was going to lose their job because of a decision that Steve, that Spielberg made about technology. Finding that information out, Steven Spielberg went, no, 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 you're not gone. You're still going to be part of this project and here's why. I realized that Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, all of those directors really did care about their teams, really cared about the people that were around them, really cared about their friends. So knowing that Lucas left his name off of this project to make sure that Henson and Henson and the Jim Henson company had their day in the sun, I, I'm, I commend them. I honestly do. But I don't want to give a lot of a, away about um, Jurassic Park because you and I can go into fucking Jurassic Park is going to be a close to a three hour episode. I'm not even kidding. Hold on to your butts, kids. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't even realize that's one of his lines. 
I got it. All right, backtrack. Go back to the labyrinth. We're getting out of dinosaurs. We're going into Where fantasy. Where were we? Where were we? So everybody knows the story of the labyrinth. Everybody knows the journey that Sarah makes. Uh, in the beginning, she meets the shield dudes that you have to figure out which door will take you to the castle and which one will go boom, 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 certain death. Um, and I've always liked those. And that actually, Sean, if you Google the um, shield puzzle door question, people are still trying to figure out which door would lead to the castle and which wouldn't. To this day, no one can solve that mystery. Oh she said God. she thinks she figured it out, but she ended up in the oubliette. Was that right or was that wrong? No one has said yes or no. Well, that's the problem. You don't. You're never going to entirely know what, like, she probably still would have had to go through some turmoil, even if she got the answer right. Yep. So. If she went up instead of going down, would they lead her back up and would she have gone right to that castle? Every time that scene plays and she falls, I, I pause and I look to see if I could see anything. Because there is a glimmer of, like, white and blue in the back. And I'm like, is that the castle? Does that lead directly to the castle or was it just, you know a red herring like this movie for years has baffled me i went on a deep dive when the internet was still young back in 2002 2001 back when are you ready i had to log into aol.com under my screen name do you want to know what my screen name was lip 1132 lip 1132 yep can you figure that one out no leah ian page 11 3 and 2 Jesus Christ. Yep. That was my that was my AOL screen name for years. I never changed it. Um and it was funny when I would log on. But back then, if y'all remember the AOL noise, uh, I'm gonna see if I can have Sean find the AOL noise and I put can, it into this. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that and you just go, ugh. Mom, get off the phone. <laughs> but I did a deep dive years and years ago of this movie because I was just really curious. That was over 20 years ago. Holy shit. You uh, were right. What? Mick Jagger was considered. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you imagine Mick Jagger in that part? Oh, no. no absolutely not. Not at all. I'm not a Rolling Stones fan. I'm not a Mick Jagger fan. But when Keith Richards showed up in Pirates of the Caribbean, I did cheer. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That was a good part for him. Because, you know, Depp based it off of fucking Keith Richards. Right. So that made that made so much sense. The next set of characters that were introduced her to is the, the dude with the talking thing. Oh, no, there's the cleaner. So I thought that scene was a little violent for kids. <laughs> the uh, cleaners. It was very Indiana Jones. It really was. Like, okay, you have this this obstacle that you have to get through and da 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 and but I was like this thing is literally a cone with like shredder and metal and knives and stuff and it's coming at this girl and it's going to absolutely kill her was that Jareth's intention all along or did he know she was gonna escape like was he just toying with her this entire time Jim Henson I need you to undie and tell me all of this shit how about t- Terry Jones? Can you explain to me what you meant by half of this shit, please? Well, as much as you hate it, the point is for you to fill in the gaps. Yep. I hate when movies don't answer questions. This is a movie that I saw 30 years ago, and I'm still like, why aren't my questions answered? 
I first saw this movie almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Welcome to adulthood, Shippy. Oh, Jesus Christ. I feel like that right now. One of our cats is sleeping and she's on her side, but her head is completely upside down and she looks like she's dead. That's how I feel. <laughs> um, and then we meet Ludo. Oh, Ludo. I love Ludo. Rock's friends. And I feel like Ludo is another representation of childhood innocence. Like, that carefree, like, you just want to make friends, you just want to be loved kind of thing. I've always thought of Ludo as, like, this sweet, lovely creature that, you know, you always, you're always going to have those people by your side no matter what. That's what I thought Ludo would be. Yeah. Or was. You know, the original costume rig for him weighed over 100 pounds. I could imagine. Uh, I guess Jim Henson told the creature shop guys to start all over, make it lighter, and they were only able to bring it down to 75 pounds. So Damn. it's still too heavy to be operated by one person. So Rob Mills and Ron, I can't say your last name, man. Uh, they split the performance. Mm. Damn. Yeah, because you do notice that he kind of leans a little and his arms don't move. And it's supposed to be a fantastical character. So I never had a problem with it. But as I've gotten older, I'm like, that thing looks like it's fucking, like, heavy. I think it looks pretty good, though. It does. Sells the effect. It looks very good for the mid-80s. What's the next big scene? She rescues Ludo. Um... She meets the fire gang. Chili, 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 fire gang, chili gang. I don't remember what these dudes are called, but they're the little red and orange kind of things that this is the real, this is the real part of the movie where you're like, I can see through the cracks because it's all green screened. We know for a fact it's all green screened. And each one of those puppets, I believe is two or three, almost four separate people because it's someone puppeting the head. And it's someone doing the torso and someone doing the legs and the arms. And it's supposed to be be able to separate, be able to kind of come apart in parts and then put itself back together and dance. But with green screen and fuzz and fur and hair, you can see the illusion through the hair, through the fuzz. And that's the only thing that, like, now, as it ages, it's completely broke down. Because you have movies like... You know, Marvel movies, you have all of these like amazing graphical movies where you do not see edges, you don't see problems, you don't see issues. Um, this is the only one where you're like, I can see the green screen through Jennifer's hair. I can see the green screen or I can see the outline of somebody in their green outfit if they move too fast. And it's it doesn't take me out of it now because I think it's very like Aw, like that kind of thing. But it is the only part of this movie where you're like, oh, well, the illusion is cracked just a bit. And even as a kid, I could see it. I was like, why does this look so, like, weird? So to interject, I have a couple of uh, little things here. Mm. I wish I had known this one earlier. The movie is loosely based on a children's picture book called Outside Over There. Outside Over There. Written and illustrated by Maurice Sendak in 1981. And the story of that book follows young Ida, who must enter a fantastical world described as outside over there to find her baby sister, who's been spirited away by some goblins. I never knew that. 
the same person wrote the book Where the Wild Things Are, which is seen in the bedroom at the beginning of the film. Yes. So that's a really cool little nod. And to slightly answer one of your questions, an ongoing joke in the movie, as we know, is Hoggle's name being mispronounced as Hogwart. Hogwart originally comes from the famous British humor book, The Complete Molesworth by Joffrey Willens and Ronald Searle? Searle? So it's much more likely that Rowling took the Hogwarts name from that. Oh. Well, that stinks. I wanted to come from the labyrinth. It very well still might, but since that's apparently a famous book in British in, culture. Yeah, in, like, in British culture, that, that maybe make more sense. Yeah. Fire gang. Okay, so Hoggle rescues her from the Chili Gang, the Fire Gang, who she, to get away from them, she throws their heads. And they're like, oh, okay, now we have to take your head off. And they realize that her head doesn't come off. There is a stuffed animal of one of the Chili Gang or the Fire Gang in her bedroom. I have been looking for information on this my entire life because I've wanted to know what the exact words for the song are and I never found them. And I've always wanted to know what book or what movie or what what that came from and I've never been able to find it but the the fire gang dude is in her bedroom you see it in the opening sequence he's a stuffed animal I'm like where did this come from and I don't know a lot of children literature because when I was younger I didn't read a lot of kids books I read a lot of babysitters club goosebumps even when I was like seven eight nine years old like R.L. Stein and the babysitters club were like at their height when I was a kid so I never really read a lot of like the wild where the wild things are I didn't know till I was older a lot of those other books um, and that's one of those things that have plagued me all my life. Um, so she escapes them because Hoggle saves her. Um, she kisses Hoggle, thanking him, and then they fall to the bog of a turtle stench, where they escape and meet Sir Didymus. He is a, 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 a fox, I think he's supposed to be. And I've always wondered if he came from a book too like all of these characters that she makes up in this story like they're supposed to be in a world where it's just goblins but there's all these like mystical fantasy characters that just came from her head and it's it's adorable Um, so Ludo and him have a fight they become friends they go to escape the bridge collapses and Ludo calls the rocks now you pointed this out when we were watching and he's like "Um, you totally can still step in it you'll totally still smell well, that, that's that's the thing. Like, it's not so much they establish through Hoggle that if you were to get fall in or anything like that, even you would smell forever. In. Yeah. He, he even says if you step in that stuff, you'll smell forever. However, like, so wouldn't it count that those rocks are covered in the stuff? Yeah. Wouldn't you still smell forever? Yeah, I know Sarah and and Hoggle have shoes on, so there's. They're not going to smell forever. The shoes might smell forever. Yeah. But then Ludo is barefoot and so is Ambrosius. Yeah. Aren't they going to smell forever? You would think. What if they were to say, if you get it on your skin, like, oh, if you get it on your actual skin or if you put your hand in there, like, I would have liked that more than, oh, if it gets on you, you're going to smell forever. Yeah. Because then at that point, you're sitting there as a kid going, he just totally put his whole fucking foot in that. Like... Ew. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it was a slightly overlooked thing. 
I also love how the Bog of Eternal Stench is burping and farting noises the entire time. Well, to be fair, it's got little, like, puckering assholes it all does, over the place. It really does. It's just like, <laughs> the entire time. And it's so funny because I'm like, this movie uses potty humor, and I love it. And that's where now it makes sense that it's somebody from Monty Python that wrote it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's British potty humor. That makes total sense now. You know that there are hidden faces throughout this movie? Yes. So when he's giving Hoggle the peach. I know that David one. Bowie's face is right there. But there are hidden faces all over this movie. Yes. That's I didn't notice any of the other ones. That one was very apparent. They're in the branches in the labyrinth. A lot of them are there in the rocks, in the textures. Mm. It's supposed to be because Jareth is always watching. That's cool. Because, like, I, I assumed that the, the, the one that's made up of the rocks, like, the force perspective one, mm. I assumed that that was supposed to be Jareth's face. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's that's really cool. Like, they should have done more of that. And apparently they did, and I just didn't notice them. <laughs> they're, they're very faint. It's a fact that I learned years ago, and then I try to watch for them. They're extremely faint. Well, I don't think they're, they were in every version of the movie, no. either. They, uh, according to this, at least, started with the DVD version. They, like, worked them in. They're, my original, I have the special edition DVD version that first came out in the early 2000s. I bought that one. That one, you can see them a little more. The Blu-ray, I will say this movie transferred beautifully onto Blu-ray. I didn't see a lot of issues, but the only thing I love about the VHS is what you love, is the aging. The fact that this movie has little bits of skips, little bit, little bits of, like, the flare, the tape flare, I like that more than the crispness of seeing the movie because at points it was too clear yeah because i was like i can see little things that you're not supposed to like when they're the little things are biting ludo i can see the little strings in their mouth yeah. and i'm like this wasn't meant for blu-ray right <laughs> this wasn't meant for high quality the fact that it was such poor quality on film was supposed to be able to help jim henson and you can see lines. You can see wires. <laughs> it's like, no! <laughs> but that's what makes this movie that more precious in my mind to fans. Because they made it knowing that the quality would help them. But like George Lucas said, like Star Wars at one point. He, he said this in the documentary. Star Wars and stuff like this where you use that to your advantage eventually technology will get better he even said it he even got reprimanded for putting the prequels onto digital rather than film and he got chastised for it because you can see the errors in the original movies we gotta stop talking about i'm really sorry magic <laughs> but it really it makes it it really it's very now yes this movie is i'm sorry where were we uh, <laughs> all right so they get out of the bog of eternal stench and they make it to the forest where everybody's like, oh, we're really hungry. And Hoggle hands her a peach that Jarrah said, you'll make her eat this. And it's like, oh, you're hungry. I have a peach. She bites it. And immediately she's like, this tastes funny. What What's wrong? And he's like, oh, damn you, Jareth. And then it goes to one of the most beautiful sequences of the movie. It's the bubble where she's this beautiful mystic gorgeous princess in this shimmering white gown that I wanted for my prom but didn't realize that in 2003 you don't want to wear that 
No. No. Um, I was like, I always want, I wanted this as a wedding dress. As a child, that's what I wanted as a wedding dress. The big old 80s poof sleeve with the poof dress. Can you imagine me wearing something like that now? That'd be ridiculous. Oh my God, I'd kill myself. Um, but <laughs> it is one of the most beautiful scenes and it's the scene where everybody's like, oh my God, Jareth is in love with Sarah. I was like, no, he's distracting her. He's literally distracting her from what she's supposed to be doing. Because while they're dancing and he's singing that beautiful um, As the World Falls Down song. This soundtrack, by the way, is gorgeous. I have it on vinyl. I love playing it on vinyl. It's probably one of my favorite soundtracks for movies because it's got the 80s synth and it's got the, the drums and it's really, it's an interesting soundtrack. But David's... Um, Add, adding the music to it is really great. So she breaks free of the bubble once she realizes that oh, he's... I, I have to do something. I have to escape. And then the next scene is her going to the junkyard and ending up in her bedroom and realizing, oh, it was all a dream. Then the garbage lady, garbage girl, I don't know what her name is. I used to know. Um, she breaks in and she's like, oh, you love this toy. Don't you love this toy? Don't you want this toy? And starts kind of piling on her things that she loves to make her like this little hoarder turtle. Well, that that was something I really I thought was kind of cool was like she starts like shoving all that like that stuff in her face. And I guess originally that character was supposed to be like a another puppet of Jarrett's yeah. Jarrett's. And uh, I just thought that was a cool way to do it because it was they were essentially she was essentially trying to make her like her. Yeah. So she was like putting all this stuff on her back the way she has stuff piled yeah, on her back. You can't let go. You don't let go. You have to keep everything. And it's when Sarah realizes this is all junk. This is not important to me. Like that's when you really see the transition of this little girl growing up into something different where she's like I can appreciate the things I own but I need to grow up and keep track of what is important to me so she escapes and her Hoggle, Ludo and Sir Didymus and Ambrosius go to the uh, Goblin City, they go in they get intercepted by like almost what is like this metal Goliath goblin thing that starts attacking them and I love how the jankiness of this puppet is used to Henson's advantage because it's huge. It's janky. It's not going to work correctly. And it's a goblin puppeting it, so you know it's definitely not going to work correctly. And it's swinging its thing and getting stuck. And Oh my god, that that is one of the cooler puppets. And the Force perspective, because that puppet's really not that big. Yeah. It's not fucking... 20 feet tall. No, they make it look like it's they humongous. They do because so. they actually force perspective so well that none of this is green screened. It's all like the puppet is on something higher and way behind and they're filming from behind it down to where they look like, oh my god, this thing's giant. It's really not. I love force perspective. I really wasn't 100% aware of force perspective till Lord of the Rings. Till I was taught how they did Gandalf versus Frodo in the carriage or in some of those scenes. Um, and then I was like, oh, I wonder if that's what they used for this movie or that movie. Turns out I was I was right. That's what they used for all these other movies, too. That sequence is pretty cool. They defeat that. They get into the Goblin City. Chaos ensues. Jareth is alerted that she's there. It's like 15 minutes till the time's over. He sends all the goblins out. Ludo calls all the rocks chaos absolutely ensues you have rocks and goblins and blowing up poor little 
little yeah. little goblin things into rocks. It that was is funny. the most hectic scene of the movie. Uh, that must have been the most fun to film too, because my favorite is the dudes on the little ostrich things where they're puppeting it by having their hand here in the the little dude's mouth. There's a hand here, their other hands here, and then then their feet are the little dude and it's like this they're they're just one whole full person the puppet is this and then their other hand i uh, those puppets are the coolest ones yeah because i'm like oh how are they gonna do that and then you learn later through like jim henson's had many documentaries teaching you stuff you learn stuff about the dark crystal in this um i would like to watch the specials on this because i think there are new specials on this blu-ray uh for back behind the scenes stuff we should have watched some of that too to have some uh, some fun facts, but this this episode's already pretty long. Um, so we get to they get through everybody, they get into the goblin castle, and Sarah says, "I've got to do this by myself." And they're like, "Oh, should you need us? We'll be here for you." And then she goes into what is one of my favorite paintings of all time. It's the upside down, the stairs. It is uh, essentially an old god. It's the painting. the famous M.C. Escher painting. Yes. Of the, I forget what it's what it's actually called. I don't remember what it's called, but it's arches and stairways going up and down, doors to nowhere, you know, stairs that lead to a pure, sheer drop. It's it's supposed to be very like mind blowing, something that the human mind can't understand. I've always thought of it as kind of like an old god thing where this is what the mind of an old god is. You'll never fully understand. Even when I was like teenagers, when I first started getting into Cthulhu, because if you live in Rhode Island and you don't get into Lovecraft, I mean, who are you? (laughs) You know, but Sarah's trying to get to Toby and Toby is crawling around this thing. And let me tell you, I hope to God that they just let that three-year-old or two-year-old just wander around that set like that. Okay, you wander. We're just going to record you and just let him have fun. The name of the Escher painting or stairs is Relativity. Relativity. Yep. Um, And then ensues Jareth kind of walking around going after Sarah. Sarah's trying to get Toby and Toby's just, you know, fucking around on the stairs and in the arches and shit and it's funny. He ends up upside down and you see at one point Jareth throws a crystal and Toby catches it. That whole scene right there is I think what may have spawned the comic because at that point if Toby can catch that, Toby's been in there long enough to where maybe Jared saw him as you're not going to be a goblin. You will be the next you know successor at that point which I thought was really really cool. So then Sarah realizes she has to jump through the center of this in order to to feed him. And you get to the bottom and he literally just grovels at her feet says I'll give you everything in the world if you don't do this basically. And she quotes the book again through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered. I have traveled beyond the cast uh, beyond the goblin city to the castle to take back the child you have stolen from me. My will is as strong as yours, and my kingdom is great. You have no power over me. Yes, I memorized that. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that ending was different in the original script. Yes, I knew that. Yeah, I guess it uh, it originally was written that she was going to punch and kick him, and then watch him shrink down until he becomes a small and sniveling goblin. Which kind of would have been cool. It would have been cool. 
But at the same time... I think they should have crossed those two ideas. Like, I think they should have had her words cause him to shrink down into a, sh- a goblin. Into a goblin. But then there wouldn't have been the possibility of... There was talks for a second Labyrinth movie for yeah. a very long... There is still talks for a second Labyrinth movie. Listen, Bowie's gone. You can't do it. No. <laughs> I mean, and let me tell you, David Bowie left this world... Everybody was heartbroken. He told no one. The only one that knew he was sick was his wife and his family. Yeah. And he put out Black Star. Have you ever listened to Black Star? Uh, I, it doesn't come to mind. Black Star was the last album he put out before he died, and it was the album he did while he was sick. Oh. It is, it's almost gives me the same feeling as Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman does, to where I'm going to continue to work. I will not let this defeat me, and I will continue to go on until it is my time to go. Black Star is an incredible album that takes you on a weird sound journey. The song Black Star, it, I listened to it, and it's very Ziggy Stardust. It's very David Bowie. It's very experimental, and it is very cool. You should probably... I, I would recommend you listen to it just to listen to it once. Yeah. I don't think you'll like it at all. We'll it's see. not it's not the type of music that a lot of people would listen to, but you can feel the pain and you can feel how devastated this man was that he's like, I don't have any more time left. Yeah. So I'm just gonna do what I need to. But yeah, there was talks about a labyrinth too, just like there was talks about a second Dark Crystal. But now Dark Crystal, the second one, still haven't watched it, is a limited series. Yeah. And I think that's the way they should have done it. Yeah. Like, if you were going to, if you were going to continue this, do it in a longer yeah. form. The only but. way you can get away with Dark Crystal being a second one, a limited series, is because there were no people. It was all puppetry. Right. This one, you have two distinct people that, yeah, Sarah's, uh, Jennifer Connelly's still around. She's in her 50s. Toby's still around. He's in his 40s. You could still do a story. There is no David Bowie. And, I mean, there are plenty of younger actors now that could encapsulate the magic that is David Bowie. Look at Remy Malik. Look at, you know, all of these people that you could give these possible whimsical characters to. But at the same time, who's going to fill that Bowie bulge? <laughs> Nobody can fill the Bowie bulge. Honestly, bulge. No. Re- rewatching this with you, I realized the, the scene where David gives Hoggle, or I'm sorry, Jareth gives Hoggle the peach. Hoggle is eye level with David Bowie's crotch. And I've always wanted to ask Jim Henson, did you mean for everybody to be able to look at his fucking junk right there in tight snake leather pants? Just being able to be like, here is my dick. This is a children's movie. This was marketed as a PG kids movie. Why does everybody only talk about the Bowie bulge? Because it's very prominent. Oh, David. You had a nice boulder in there. Oh, God. Did Ludo call that one out? Oh. So, after after Sarah basically she takes him. away Jareth's power, yep. they are sent home. Yep. She ends up... She ends up being in the foyer of her house with the clock going off. And it's then and there that you realize how much of the things in the labyrinth look like her home. And you sit there in your mind thinking, was this an actual journey? 
Or did this poor little girl just have a psychotic break? I think if anything, it was her imagination running wild. Which I've always admired that imagination. I had an imagination growing up, but once I hit like teenage years, my imagination is shit. I don't really have a great imagination anymore. Like I can't, if I try to remember things in my brain, it's very cloudy. I don't have crystal clear vision. Like I can't go on a fantastical journey like that unless I watch a movie or read a book. But just knowing that that girl's imagination was that vivid and that wild It's like, oof, I wish. And I hope that people who have that kind of vivid imagination and creativity don't ever let it go. Because that is just wild. So she ends up going back to her room. Her parents come home. And when her parents come home, you see her putting things away. She's putting away all of the things that she just went through. You can see that she's growing up. That she realizes that You know, maybe it's time. Maybe I don't have to forget who I was, but maybe I have to kind of move forward at this point. And it's kind of sad. And then all the characters come back, you know, do you need us? Should you need us? And all of that sweet and lovable stuff is broken because now there's a goblin party in our room. (laughs) With Jared watching, Jared watching from outside as the owl. So it, it left it open for a possible sequel at that point in my mind, but nothing was ever done. Unfortunately. Honestly, I don't want a sequel to this. I think it would have been cool if it had been done back then. Hmm. But, unfortunately. Now I think it would be too technical, too advanced. This needed Jim Henson's puppetry. This needed the whimsy. I think technology is so far now that I think it would just be ruined, in my opinion. I agree. That covers the, the movie, yeah. Uh, we moving on to closing questions. Yeah, because if you keep letting me talk, I'm just going to talk for hours. Okay. Overall thoughts on the film? Do I have to say it? I've talked about this movie for, what, two hours? I love this film. I love it. I love it for its meaning. I love it for what it gave me growing up. I love it for what it still gives me. It gives me hope. It gives me imagination. It gives me this, the world isn't so bad if there's... Jim Henson and Puppets and David Bowie. Yeah, I uh, I think that this is a crowning achievement. Like, I think that this is a very strong movie with a very strong message. Mm. I think that it's very apparent that this was a passion project and that this is somebody doing something that was unprecedented at the time. Mm-hmm. It's a love letter to an art form that is dying. It's not dead yet. It's not dead yet, but it is... It's dying in a sense. I don't think it'll ever go away completely, but it's it's something that a lot of people just don't utilize anymore, Mm. and it hurts me personally. (laughs) Uh, I think this is a... It's a phenomenal film. Yeah. Like, if you've never seen it, I think you should. Yes. Like, I think it's a really... It, it kills me that kids growing up now... Don't know what this is. Don't know what this is and will never be shown this when they're children. Yeah. Any favorites? The whole fucking thing. So my favorite scene, and has always been my favorite scene, is the opening. 
where she comes out in that beautiful renaissance kind of gown and starts spouting the lines like it's a play and you realize she's alone in the park talking to a dog uh that's yeah the opening is still my favorite my favorite song is the song that she's writing home to it's called underground that's my favorite that's those that whole beginning sequence is my favorite because you're being introduced to this character who just doesn't want to grow up clear that she's 15 16 17 years old and just doesn't want to you know i don't specifically have any favorite scenes or characters or Mm. anything like that uh my favorite thing about this movie is the the practical nature of it all like even the stuff done digitally barring the owl in the opening credits are really cool um digital effects that Mm. like had physical elements to them Mm. but the the puppetry the puppetry is the star of this one it's gorgeous and the puppets in this Stand apart from anything else Jim Hansen did. Like the closest thing you can relate it to is Dark Crystal because it's a similar vibe. Yeah. But I know for a fact that he made it up clear when they started this movie that he didn't want the puppetry in this to be anything to be connected to like the Muppets in any way. Yeah. Even like his core team that he had worked with forever, he made it clear that they weren't allowed to do the voices for any of these characters because he didn't want that connection. Yeah, because it was only him and Brian that were on this. Everybody else was different. I think his puppeteers probably worked on this movie, but they weren't allowed to have spoken dialogue. Yeah. Which is really, really interesting. It it shows that he was trying to do something different with this movie, and he was doing everything he possibly could to keep that idea of childish cartoons that whimsy yeah, out, of it, yeah. out of it and give you a more uh, a darker and still but still fun yeah if the story. Muppets were a kids thing Labyrinth was the young adult Dark Crystal's the adult yes that's how I've always felt does it work yes End of story, point blank. Yes. I have no reasoning. I have no backups to it. It just works because in my mind, I'm biased, but it's perfect, even with its flaws. I don't think you're wrong. Like I, I think it works despite the fact that you can see through the cracks, that, that you can figure out how the effects are done. I think that it works because it's visually strong enough to envelop you into the story Mm. it just captivates you and you kind of let all the the other details fall away yeah would you recommend it more than any other movie i have ever recommended i recommend this one because if you've never seen it you should if you hate puppets if you don't like music if you hate fun still watch this This movie is not just a simple kids movie. It's more of teaching you to be able to 
sometimes you've got to let go, but you don't forget. We all have had things in the past few years. The last two to three years have been fucking rough for every single person. This movie teaches you, you got to move on, but do not forget. Even if it's a simple little thing, you just got to keep going. That's it. That's... I will recommend this every day for the rest of my life. I agree. I also recommend this movie. I recommend this to anyone who enjoys practical effects. I recommend this to anyone who hasn't seen it. Mm. Um, I recommend this to kids. I recommend this to parents. I recommend that you show this to your kids Mm. while they're still kids, while they can still just fall in love with it for what it is and let the story influence them in a way. Don't explain what this is to your kids. Put it in, let them watch it, and let them piece together what it is now. I'm 36 years old. I watched this movie almost 30 years ago. I still am trying to understand why. And I'm to this day still going, this is why I love this movie. I'm still piecing it to things in my childhood. You know? There are a lot of things about this movie that I've pieced together that I won't tell people because that's very, like, personal to me. But every single person can connect to this film. How would you make this today? I wouldn't. And here's why I wouldn't. With the cracks, with the personal, with the, um, not personal effects, fuck, with the (laughs) practical effects. Jim Henson did this movie right. He did it well. I believe if you do it now, Jim Henson's not here to put his signature mark. His brother still is. His team still is. There are people that are still here that could do almost as good, but it will never be this movie. No, I I agree. I, I don't think this should ever be done again. I think it's had its successor with the comic series. Mm-hmm. I think if you tried to do this today, you would do it too big. I think yeah. you would you would you would make it way too much, way more than it has to be. This doesn't need the Marvel treatment. No. And th- this should be something like Star Wars. The original Star Wars. If somebody tried to remake Star Wars, they I would, would kill them. Fucking yeah. This it, it's a benchmark. And it should remain that. It should remain something that you can look back on and feel nostalgic, but also realize that we wouldn't be where we are today without some things like this. There are tons of movies that are like that. I would say there's about 50 movies that are this. This is where things got better. Yeah. This is where technology. This is where filmmaking this is where acting this is where you know small things change for the better i believe this movie is one of those where the way a story was interpreted the way it was told the reason why this is a cult following for so many children of the 80s and 90s is because of how just how they did this it it cannot be duplicated Well, that brings us to our big question. Is this mainstream exploitation or other? This is mainstream. This is, this was needed in the 80s. And point blank, this is mainstream. 
Yeah, I agree. This is definitely a mainstream movie. There's nothing you can really, you could maybe argue that it's other. For but fantasy, yeah, yeah. That that would be as far as I would go. It's definitely not exploitation. But it's not high fantasy. That's the thing. Like, this it's is... pretty close. It's pretty high, but it's not like um, Lady Hawk. Lady no. Hawk was high fantasy. Yeah. You know, this is... This is spectacular. It's visionary. It's beautiful. But that brings our discussion on the labyrinth to an end. But don't go anywhere just yet. Stay tuned for the coming attractions. recommendation but this movie was one that we have seen the poster for many times it's a very famous poster in certain circles certain areas of the world you'll see this in some movies just on the wall and i've always been intrigued because this fucking cat looks stupid and demonic well it's a very striking image it is it's a very striking image and i'm very excited to watch this because uh a friend of ours alicia um when she was over visiting the other day I showed it to her and she's like, oh, I will watch this. I will watch this 100%. Um, and we're going to let her and her husband borrow this afterwards because they're very into Japanese culture, anime and all that stuff. So we'll see what they think of it. But I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing something completely different and dubbed, honey. This is our third Japanese movie. Oh, yes. This one, I've seen a little bit of like people talking about this one and like I've seen actually seen some short clips from it and stuff this is a very early attempt at visual effects in japan Mm -hmm. and it's very by today's standards it is very shitty is this horror technically okay but because of all the the effects that they use and everything and it's like a lot of compositing and a lot of things like that it's laughable now but that's the beauty of these movies. You've got to go back to simpler times to see how far we have come and 
it's one thing that I suffer from is the mentality of put yourself in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s when these first came out and how incredible they were at that moment. I mean, I think the only movie that I really saw in theaters that was groundbreaking at the time was Jurassic Park. I saw that in theaters and how groundbreaking it was in that moment. But now fucking Marvel limited TV series looks better than that now. Yeah. But you got to put yourself back in 93 when that came out and everybody was absolutely fucking gobsmacked. So I'm I'm learning, guys, because I'm I have a hard time putting myself there because a movie can suck to me because I have a 2022 mentality. Yes. I think this one's going to be kind of fun to watch. I think it's going to be interesting. I don't know if it'll be good. Hey, we might it might be the shittiest movie we've got to watch, but we might love it, we might hate it. We'll uh we'll see in the review. Right? Well, that brings our discussion today to an end. If you want to keep up on everything that we're doing, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast. We're on Twitter at GrindhouseCast. Find us on Discord where you can chat with Leah about movies or whatever the hell you want. Hey. All the links for everything are going to be down in the show notes. Listen to us. Give us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your morning fix. New episodes come out first thing every Monday morning. If you like what we're doing and you want to show us some support, you can find all that information down in the show notes as well. You can support us on our Patreon. We have support directly through Acast. Anything that you can give to help this podcast grow is much appreciated. Until next week, I'm Sean. And I'm Leah. Thanks for listening and keep watching. felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.